Thank you very much for hosting me here. It's been a delight, and uh, many of the members here have been incredibly kind to me, even in the conversations between the services. We've already had some very gifted artists lead us in singing, and I'd like to begin with a song also, but I'm not a gifted artist. So I'm going to ask us to do something kind of different. I'd like us all just kind of a cappella to sing a song that hopefully most of you know, just the chorus of Amazing Grace. Can someone lead us out in that? Who's got a better voice than I do? Beautiful. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. Beautiful poetry, a metaphor for a life that has been impacted by the presence of God and His grace. But could it be more than just poetry? Could it be more than just metaphor? Could it be even more literal, to be blind, but now to see? you kind of hang on to that thought for a while. Let me take you to Calcutta, India. In the community where Mother Teresa served for many decades, the Sisters of Charity, it was their tradition every morning to take an ambulance to the local train station. Because every night, poor families would come and abandon their loved ones at the train station who were too sick to be cared for at home anymore, and they didn't have any money to take them to the hospital. And every day, the Sisters of Charity would collect these abandoned sick people, bring them back to the hospital in the ambulance. And one day, they found a man at the train station who was in really bad condition, very close to death. He had open wounds all over his body, maggots actually eating his flesh. And when he came back to the hospital and Mother Teresa saw him, she claimed him for herself. She spent all day by his bedside, cleaning his wounds, trying to keep him cool and comfortable, praying by his bedside. And then very briefly in the afternoon, he found the strength to open up his eyes and thank her, and then he died. That night when she came to dinner with the other sisters, they said that she had this radiant smile on her face, and they asked her, why are you so happy? And she said to them, referencing Matthew 25, because today I had the privilege of caring for the dying Christ. Remember, Jesus said that, what you do unto the least of these, you've done unto me. Mother Teresa has been gone for 20 years now, but she's been celebrated by both Catholics and Protestants, by both believers and non-believers, by the powerful and the weak. But what was it about this little Albanian nun that gave her so much influence? She didn't have any great education. She obviously had no money. She had no great position of power and authority in government or commerce. What was it about her that made her so impactful? I want to suggest to you that it was not primarily what she did in the world, but how she saw the world. Where others would see a a homeless poor man dying at a train station, she saw the face of her Savior. Where others would see multitudes of street children, she saw the children of God. 
Mothers would be impressed with the power of a president or a pope. She saw a man in need of God's grace just like anyone else. Here's my point. The way she saw the world determined her actions within it. Vision precedes action. I have the privilege of traveling a lot all over the country, increasingly internationally, and particularly when I'm in North America and I go to different colleges, universities, churches, Christian conferences, retreats, whatever it might be, there's a constant theme that comes up, particularly among the leaders that I talk to, and it's about what to do in response to the declining influence of Christianity in the West. What do we do with the fact that our institutions are shrinking, that fewer people who are raised in the faith stick with it, that those who are outside the faith see no appeal in exploring it, and even those who are within the faith and who are attending church regularly, by most statistics, are living less and less consistently with the values that Jesus taught us. How do we explain this and what do we do about it? I generally run into two solutions. One side says that the problem is that we need more resources. We need new and better resources to teach people about Jesus, to teach them to follow him, to give them the information they need and equip them to actually live out the Christian life. And every time I hear this, I throw up a little bit in my mouth. We are the wealthiest, most resourced Christians who have ever lived in the history of the world. We have more churches, more books, more radio stations, more conferences, more colleges and universities, more retreats. We have more resources than any people ever in the history of the world to follow Jesus. I can't really make an argument for the problem being a lack of resources. Okay, so if it's not that, then what is it? The other explanation I hear everywhere I go is it's not a lack of resources, it's a lack of motivation. We're just not on fire enough for our faith. We're not committed enough. We don't sacrifice enough. We don't give enough. Eh, There may be some truth to that depending on what kind of community you're a part of, but again, most places I go, I meet incredibly remarkable people. Some of them are pastors or church leaders, ministers or priests. Other times, they're lay people who have an integrated vision of their faith, and they carry it into their communities and in their schools and into their workplaces, and they love others and they care for them, and they sacrifice time and energy and treasure. And yeah, there's a lot of lukewarm stuff out there, but I meet a lot of really committed, wonderful people who've sacrificed greatly to see the advancement of what they believe Christ is calling them to do. So I kind of remain unconvinced that it's just a matter of motivation, that all we need is a swift kick in the pants. So if it's not a lack of resources and it's not a lack of motivation, how do we explain the declining influence of our faith? I want to suggest to you that the real problem is a lack of vision. And by vision, I don't mean like a corporate vision statement, the kind of thing you put on your letterhead or that you plaster on some wall in the foyer of a church or something like that. It's not what I mean. I mean literal vision, the way we see the world. If we do not see the world the way Jesus sees the world, we will be powerless to act within the world the way he would act. Vision precedes action. And you see this in Jesus' own ministry. When you read the Gospels, and his interactions with his own disciples, you find that Jesus spent very little time giving his disciples practical teaching. He didn't tell them a whole lot of how-tos. 
It's not there, despite our kind of modern American inclination to want to boil everything down to three application points. That's not how he taught. Because he wasn't primarily engaged in transformation of behavior. Instead, when you read the Gospels, you find that both Jesus' parables and his miracles are designed to open the eyes of his followers to see a different world. He wanted them to see a world in which the first would be last and the last would be first. A world in which it wasn't the strong and the mighty and the powerful who were truly great, but it was the marginalized and the lowly and the forgotten. He wanted them to see a world in which it's not the one with with great influence who has power in the kingdom of God, but the one who is a servant. He wanted them to see a world in which it was actually the widow who puts just a penny into the offering who actually gave more than anyone else. He wanted them to see a world in which even a rejected and crucified Messiah is lifted up to become king over all. It was a completely upside-down vision of the world. And the reason Jesus wanted them to see this world is because he knew that if they came to see that world, then their actions would automatically follow. But his disciples were slow. They didn't pick up on it. And on more than one occasion, Jesus rebuked them, quoting the prophet Isaiah, by saying, you have eyes, but you still do not see. And I wonder if he could say the same thing to the American church today. You have all kinds of resources. You have all kinds of money. You have all kinds of churches. You have all kinds of political influence and power. But you still do not see. I want to take you to a story from Matthew's Gospel that illustrates two different ways of seeing the world. And I want to use this story to kind of investigate how do we really see the world and what are the consequences of that to the way we live within it. So turn to Matthew 26 if you have a copy of the Scriptures. Let me give you a little context here. This is after the Last Supper. Jesus has gone out to the Mount of Olives. He's prayed to his Father about his coming suffering, his crucifixion. And he's with his disciples in the garden that night. I'll begin reading in verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then will the scriptures be fulfilled? Okay, this story fascinates me because it's clear that the circumstances are dark. In fact, in another gospel, Jesus refers to this moment as the hour when darkness reigns. It is evil, it is unjust. And yet, Jesus and Peter, who's the disciple who grabs the sword and goes on the attack, Jesus and Peter respond to the same circumstance completely differently. Jesus responds in faith. 
Peter responds in fear. Jesus responds peacefully. Peter responds violently. And I think the reason they respond differently is because the way they see what is unfolding is completely different. They have two different visions of the world. Let's begin with Peter because he's the one we're most going to identify with. Peter looks at this moment with the soldiers and the swords and the clubs, and he sees it as a threat. This is a dangerous circumstance. Now, if any of you have taken biology in high school, you know that when an organism is threatened, it will respond in one of two ways. What are they? Fight or flight, right? And you see Peter do both here. First, he tries to fight. He grabs his sword. He goes on the attack. He's a fisherman, not a soldier, and all he manages to do is cut off some guy's ear, right? Quickly realizing he's not going to overpower this threat. So then what does he do? He and the other disciples, we know, they flee. They head for the hills. They abandon Jesus. They run for their lives. Fight and flight. But here's the thing. Both fight and flight are really two sides of the same coin. They're both a means of trying to gain control over a dangerous circumstance. One side says the way you get control is by dominating it, by overpowering it and pacifying it. The other side says, no, the way you gain control of the situation is get out of there. Avoid the situation. Run away from it. But they're both a means of control. So you you see the, the kind of pattern, the perception that you're under threat, the world is a dangerous place, which provokes fear. And in fear, we respond with a desire for control. Okay. Now here's the kind of leap I need you to take with me. It's going to sound strange, but stick with me. All human religion is a system of control predicated on fear. All human religion is a system of control predicated on fear. Think about it. If you believe that this world is a fundamentally dangerous and threatening place, a place of scarcity where you're not going to know if you have enough, a place of chaos and disorder where you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow and what kind of evil or injustice might come your way, if it's a, if it's a world of ugliness where all kinds of terrible things happen, and if that's how you see the world, as a dangerous, threatening place, you are going to be afraid. And in your fear, you're going to desire control, a way of either dominating the world or withdrawing from it And that's exactly where religion steps in. Religion says the way to gain control over this dangerous world is to control the God or gods you believe control the world. This is all religion does. It gives you the devices, the levers, the strings to pull to control the world so you won't be so afraid. All right, let me me give you a story to illustrate this completely outside of our context. Um, When I was 19 years old, I spent a month, month and a half in, in Mumbai, India. And it's because my father is from India. He's an immigrant. My mother is a native of Chicago. Very bizarre upbringing. Um, good news is I'd probably be paying for my therapist's kids to go to college. But it was a bizarre upbringing. But I was in India that summer. And I was there because my cousin was getting married. I was staying in the home of my aunt and uncle. And one morning... Relatively early, I was startled awake because my uncle barged into my bedroom. And he walked very carefully because he was balancing a big silver dish on his head. 
And in the dish, from what I could tell, was water, so he had to walk carefully, and flowers floating in the water, and there was a coconut in that dish, and the coconut was on fire. Yeah, yeah, not the strangest part. Because around my uncle were a bunch of very colorfully dressed women wearing their Indian saris, if you're familiar with Indian dress, very colorful, long dresses, and they were singing and dancing as my uncle started walking around my bed. They had drums and bells, and I was just startled awake by this. I was like, what on earth did I eat last night? Right? Where's the white rabbit in the tea party? This is crazy. And then as my vision starts coming into focus, I, I realize these something weird about these women. Like, these are the least attractive women I've ever seen. <laughs> Turns out they weren't women. I later find out that they were actually eunuchs. Uh, I know Austin is weird, but I don't know how many eunuchs you guys have around here. If you're not familiar with what a eunuch is, uh, don't look it up online. You know, research like in a Bible dictionary or something like that. They're in the Old Testament. Here's the deal. In, in certain expressions of Hinduism in India, uh, a eunuch is a boy who is castrated at a young age and therefore never really develops into a man. And these eunuchs will gather together in, into clans, and they kind of are roving groups of, of men who dress as women. And they're kind of seen as holy people because they're sort of genderless or between genders and therefore more like the divine, like God, who is without gender. And so they go around looking for homes that are celebrating a birth or a marriage or some kind of significant event. And they found out that my cousin was getting married. They showed up at the house that morning, and they were performing their religious ceremonies, these prayer services throughout the house to bless the household and the marriage. And my uncle, being the head of the household, was kind of pulled in to be the central actor in their ceremonies. They finally leave my bedroom. I get up to find out what on earth is going on. I go out into the hall. They finish the other rooms. And then my uncle and these eunuchs get in a nasty, heated argument by the front door. I don't speak Hindi. I don't understand Hindi. So I'm just watching this, and it was incredibly entertaining. But I asked one of the household servants who was there, like, what is going on? And the servant explained to me that they were negotiating over the price. I was like, price for what? They didn't give us breakfast in bed. What are we paying these people for? And he said, well, this is how they make their living. They go around and offer to bring God's blessing upon your home, and then you're supposed to pay them. And if you don't pay them enough, they threaten to curse your family or your home or whatever it might be. Eventually, my uncle paid them whatever they wanted, and they left. Okay. How do you explain that whole scene? It's actually not that complicated. Entering into a marriage or having your child enter into a marriage is a dangerous and unpredictable thing. You don't know how it's going to go. And so you become afraid. And in that culture, in that religious tradition, the way you get a sense of control, the way you get God on your side to ensure that things are going to go all right, is apparently you bribe a group of cross-dressing eunuchs. Right? That's the lever of control. Now, you can giggle about that and how weird and superstitious and exotic, and you might think my family over there are completely crazy, country bumpkin, you know, uneducated, superstitious maroons, but they're not. My uncle, who passed away a few years ago, was actually a very successful businessman, highly educated. He had businesses in Hong Kong, Tokyo, New York, all over the world. 
And yet here he is bribing a bunch of cross-dressing eunuchs. Why? If you believe the world is a dangerous place, you want control. And different religious traditions give us different means of control. This is why pagans would drop a virgin down the volcano to make sure there's a harvest next year. But here's the thing. Is your relationship with God really that different? How many of us negotiate with God because we're afraid? Gosh, I don't know what's going to happen with my marriage. I don't know what's going to happen with my health. I don't know what's going to happen with my job. I don't know what's going to happen to my community. I don't know what's going to happen to my country. And so we say to ourselves, okay, well, I'm going to go to church regularly so God will bless me. I'm I'm going to give more money so God's favor is on me. I'm going to say these prayers more regularly to kind of get God's attention I'm going to keep my morality or my sexuality within certain prescribed boundaries so that everything will go well with me. It's the same thing. It's fundamentally rooted in a vision of the world as a dangerous and threatening place. And so we desire control and we turn to religious means to get that control. So why is this such a problem? Well, let me just give you two reasons. There's a a theologian in the Middle Ages named Thomas Aquinas. And Aquinas said that fear is a contracting posture of our soul. That when we're afraid, we turn inward. That all of our resources, our energy, all of it contracts inward because we revert to a posture of self-preservation. And all we can think about is ourselves. Protecting myself, my family, my clan, my church, my community. And from that contracted posture caused by fear, we are incapable of living in an external way, of loving and blessing and forgiving. And he, he compared it to a, a city under siege, if you know anything about kind of medieval history. When an invading army would come against a city, all the peasants in the countryside would collect all of the resources they could. And they would run into the city behind the wall, they would put up the gates, and they would hunker down, hoping that they had enough resources inside the city to outlast the army outside the city. The longest siege lasted, I think it was 22 years or something like that. And that's kind of an image for what happens when we're primarily afraid, when we look at the world as a dangerous place. We turn inward and we become self-obsessed. We hoard our resources. We hoard our love. We hoard our energy. We don't give. We don't sacrifice. We don't serve others. And we certainly don't do that toward those we disagree with. It becomes a a safety-driven enclave. And here's the other big reason why this is such a problem, the biggest reason. From that posture, that inward turning of fear, when we believe the world is a dangerous and threatening place, you will find it impossible to follow the teachings of Jesus. In fact, you will probably read the teachings of Jesus and come up with excuses for why you don't have to follow them or for why he didn't really mean it. I mean, just take the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous teaching, Matthews 5, 6, and 7. Jesus says some pretty remarkable things there. Give to the one who asks of you. Don't deny the person who's asked you to go one mile to go two. Someone strikes your right cheek, turn him your left also. 
Do not store up for yourself treasures on earth. Pray for your enemy. Love your enemy. That's, that's a command that doesn't just mean have like sentimental feelings towards bad people. To love your enemy means to actively seek and do what is good for the person who hates you. Forgive anyone who has wronged you. Those kinds of commandments are absolutely nonsensical if you are afraid. If you believe the world's dangerous and threatening, those commandments make no sense. And so we come up with all kinds of elaborate reasons why Jesus wasn't really serious, despite the fact that he ends that whole sermon with a story about actually doing what he just said. Do you know the story about the wise and foolish builders? He says, the wise builder is the one who hears my words and actually does them. He was serious. He wants us to actually live this way. And we go, Jesus, you're nuts. Because if I live that way, this world is going to destroy me. You can't be serious. That's the problem that we face today in the West. We see the world as a dangerous place. In our fear, we want control, and control bars us from doing the very things that Jesus invites us to do. And you wonder why so many people outside the church look at Christians and say, why don't you look more like Jesus? Why do you look so self-interested? Why are you primarily protectionist? Why are you always trying to identify who's out to get you, what group is against you, or who are the bad people in the culture that we need to destroy or strip from power? Why are you always running away with your families into little enclaves and isolated settings where you don't have to engage anybody who thinks differently than you or acts differently than you because you're worried about how it might infect your faith or your family? Why are you so afraid? Let me tell you something else. If you're listening to Christian leaders or those leaders who claim the mantle of Christ, and they're primarily leading you to be more afraid, they are not leading you by the power of the Spirit of Christ. Because we have not been given a spirit of fear, but one of power and freedom. Somehow, I don't know how it happened, but in the Western church, we've actually made fear and anger into virtues. And they're not. They will prevent us from loving our neighbor and following the teachings of Jesus. Okay, that's the bad news. What's the good news? That's how Peter saw this circumstance. How did Jesus see it? Let me show you the more excellent way. Judas arrives with the soldiers and Jesus doesn't run away. He doesn't flee. He doesn't grab a sword. He doesn't fight. He doesn't seek control. Instead, he says to Judas, friend, a word that both emphasizes Jesus' love and the depth of Judas' betrayal. Do what you've come to do. And then when Peter grabs the sword and goes on the attack, Jesus turns around and rebukes Peter and says, no, this is not how it's supposed to be with you, those who follow me. Those who live by the sword will die by the sword. And then we know from the gospel account that Jesus actually knelt down and picked up the severed ear 
and he healed the man who has come to kill him. He actively loved his enemy. And later in the gospel account, as Jesus is on the cross dying, he looks out upon those people who had betrayed him, who had unjustly tortured him, who were unfairly killing him. And he said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. How did Jesus have the strength to forgive, to love, to not run? He says exactly why. In verse 53, he says to Peter, Don't you know that I could appeal to my Father, and he would at once send me more than 12 legions of angels, but how then would the Scriptures be fulfilled? See, Jesus looked out on that circumstance that night, and he recognized that it was evil. He recognized it was unjust, that it was wrong. He referred to this as the hour when darkness reigns. And yet, he saw something more. He knew that behind all of this injustice and evil, there was something else at work. He knew that all of this was unfolding according to his father's plan. He knew that, as C.S. Lewis would say, there was a deeper magic at work. He knew that behind this darkness, behind this temporary suffering, behind this moment of injustice, there was goodness coming. But on the other side of the cross was the empty tomb, that he would be raised up, that he would be glorified, that he would be rescued from evil. Philippians says that because of Jesus' suffering, he was lifted up and given the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every tongue would confess and every knee would bow, and that all of his enemies would be put under his feet. Hebrews chapter 12 says that Jesus endured the shame of the cross, all the awful pain and injustice and suffering. He endured the cross because of the joy that was set before him. In other words, he could see on the other side that it was all ultimately going to be okay. Here's a simple way of putting it. Jesus recognized that despite everything that was unfolding, this is still a God-with-us world in which we are ultimately perfectly safe. Do you believe that you are perfectly safe? Do you believe that there is ultimately nothing that can do any harm to you? Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that nothing in all of creation, neither height nor depth, angel or demon, life or death, nothing in all the cosmos can ever separate you from the love of God in Christ. If that's how you see the world, as a perfectly safe place, then you don't have to be afraid. And if you don't have to be afraid, then you don't have to seek control. And if you don't have to seek control, guess what? The commands of Jesus suddenly make perfect sense. It makes sense to love my enemy, to forgive the one who's wronged me, to give to the one who asks of me, to bless the one who's cursed me. It makes sense because what's the worst they can do to me? Ultimately, not even death has any hold on me. If we believe that, if we see the world that way, if that's the vision we have of the world, of the God-with-us world, we have just become the most dangerous people on the planet. 
Dangerous not because we can go out there and destroy things and dominate people, but dangerous because there's nothing this world can do to us that would ever prevent us from loving even our worst enemy. The world has no hold on us if we see a God-with-us reality. And until we have that kind of vision, we will be powerless to following the commands of Jesus. Let me tell you a story that kind of illustrates this. In 1956, Martin Luther King Jr. was a 26-year-old Baptist minister in Montgomery, Alabama. And he found himself through interesting kind of machinations as the leader of the bus boycott that started when Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat. And on the night of January 26th, he was woken up in the middle of the night by a phone call. And I can't tell you exactly what the voice on the other end of the line said, but in essence, the phone call said that if King and his family were not out of Montgomery within three days, they would all be dead. Now, if you're a black minister in Montgomery, Alabama, leading a bus boycott in 1956, that is not an idle threat. King hung up the phone but said that he he couldn't go back to sleep. So he poured himself a cup of coffee in his kitchen and he sat down at the table. He talked about this later in a sermon. He said he buried his face into his hands over that cup of coffee. And by his own admission, he was absolutely paralyzed by fear. Fear for himself, for his young wife, for his infant daughter. He said all he could think about was how to escape, how to get out of town. There's that control thing, right? Fight or flight. And that contraction of the soul that Aquinas talked about, paralyzed by fear, almost narcissistic and self-preservation. But as he was there at midnight over his cup of coffee in his kitchen, King said that he heard another voice, not over the telephone, but an inner voice. This is what it said to him. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth, and I will be with you, even until the end of the world. I will never leave you, never leave you. No, I will never leave you alone. I promise to never, never, never leave you alone. The interesting thing about this is if you know anything about Martin Luther King Jr., he was a brilliant theologian, highly educated. He knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. He knew all the doctrine. He was the son of a Baptist minister. He spent his whole life in the church. He was the grandson of a minister. He knew all the churchy stuff. He'd experienced it all. He knew all the right doctrine and knowledge, and yet for the first time in his life, he had an experiential encounter with the reality of Christ. If we were Methodists, we would say that he was strangely warmed by the presence of the Spirit of God. And King said that at that moment, his fear was absolutely gone. By his own confession, he said, I knew at that moment I could stand up and I could face anything because he was convinced that this is a God-with-us world in which he would never abandon him. King's new vision of the world was tested three nights later. He was at his church for a rally for the bus boycott when somebody barged into the back of the sanctuary and shouted that King's parsonage, his little house down the street, had been firebombed. 
The entire congregation with King ran down the street and sure enough found his house engulfed in flames. This little house where his wife and daughter were. Thankfully, they had escaped unharmed. But as King got there, he looked around at the situation and realized that the bigger danger was still in front of him. Because surrounding his house was a very angry mob of African-American citizens ready to riot for this attack on their leader's home. And they were armed. They had guns, rifles, and baseball bats. It's at that moment that King did something just stunning. He stood on the porch of his still-burning house, and he spoke to the crowd. And here's what he said to them. He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them and make sure they know you love them. For we are doing what is right, we are doing what is just, and God is with us. When the crowd heard that, they all dropped their weapons. And they held hands together and they began to sing a hymn. And you know which one. Amazing Grace. Once was lost, but now am found. Was blind, but now I see. They were given a new vision of the world, a safe vision, a God-with-us world in which they didn't have to attack, they didn't have to seek control, they didn't have to dominate, they didn't have to run away, a vision of the world in which God was with them and they were safe enough to even love the people who hated them. One of the white police officers who was there that night said that if it hadn't been for that black preacher, we would have all been dead. Historians look back on that night as a turning point in the civil rights movement in the United States, where ideas and rhetoric about loving your enemy and nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience, where all that went from rhetoric to reality. It became practice, and it changed the course of our country. I think the historians are wrong. That was not the turning point in the civil rights movement. The turning point was three nights earlier when King was alone in his kitchen, absolutely paralyzed by fear, and he had such a profound encounter with the Spirit of God that it transformed his vision of the world and took away his fear. We don't need more resources. We don't need more programs, more books, more conferences. We don't even need more motivation. What we need is new vision. We need to have such a profound encounter with the risen Christ that we come to recognize this as a God with us world in which we are not afraid, we don't need control, and we are set free to love even those who hate us, knowing that no matter what they do, whether they strap me to a Roman cross or they shoot me with an assassin's bullet, no matter what they do, nothing in all of creation can ever separate me from the love of God in Christ. And I am perfectly safe and so safe, in fact, that I will love you to the moment I die, no matter how much you hate me. And until we become that kind of church, we will not see a transformation in our culture. The problem is not outside. The problem is inside. The problem is not an external threat from some group or politician or policy. The problem is our vision. We just don't see the world Jesus sees.
So how do we see it? How do we get this new vision of the world? I don't have a three-step formula. I don't have a book to sell you. I don't have a program to give you. Because I think it happens exactly the way that the song says. It happens by God's amazing grace. It happens like it happened to King. It happens when we come to the end of ourselves where we have no idea what to do, where we've given up faith in our resources and powers and abilities, and we're empty-handed in the middle of the night crying out to God, and he meets us in our despair and reminds us that he is with us and he will not leave us. Maybe what we need is less resources, not more. Maybe what we need is less dynamic leaders rather than more dynamic leaders. Maybe what we need is less political power, not more political power. Maybe what we need is less proficiency in our cause and more dependency in prayer. Maybe if we came to the end of ourselves, we would discover God's amazing grace flooding into our lives and releasing us from our fear and giving us that renewed vision of the world. When that happens, when that happens to the church in the West, then we together as sisters and brothers can truly stand up and sing, I was blind, but now I see. Let me pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your patience, for your grace towards us in our wandering and our striving for control and our manipulations. No doubt there are some here tonight who are facing hours when darkness reigns, who have struggled to see your goodness in the midst of terrible circumstances. I pray that you would meet them in their darkness and remind them of your presence and goodness. There are others here, no doubt, who have experienced clarity of vision, have seen your grace, I pray, Lord, that you would equip them to bless those around them, to come alongside the struggling and the suffering, the despairing, and encourage them with what they have seen. And we pray for your whole church, that there would be a renewal, a freedom from fear, and a grace that gives us new eyes. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit as one God, now and forever. Amen.